Earlier this year, on April 2nd, the singer, songwriter, and actress Miley Cyrus posted a picture on Instagram. It showed her straddling a plant called Yucca brevifolia, better known by its common name, the Joshua tree, even though it's actually a tree-like succulent, so that's kind of a misnomer. She's sitting on a branch in a purple floral bodysuit, which honestly looks pretty uncomfortable since Joshua tree leaves are spiky. She captioned it, looking down on all the petty drama like dot dot dot, and she posted a similar picture six hours later. Immediately, fans objected to the pictures. I love you, Miley, said one, but please stay off the Joshua trees as they are incredibly fragile. Other commenters were not as polite. Way to set a terrible example, another person wrote. The executive director of the Mojave Desert Land Trust said that, We asked Miley Cyrus to consider her status as a public figure and remove this photo from her social media accounts in order to educate others and to prevent potential damage to Joshua Trees, in a statement to the Desert Sun newspaper. Like many of the Instagram critics, he said that the shallow root system of the trees and the fragility of their branches made them vulnerable. Nearly 50,000 people signed an online petition asking Cyrus to apologize and make a donation to the National Park Service. Cyrus soon took the pictures down. I reached out to her team for comment on this a few months ago, and they never got back to me. Miley Cyrus undoubtedly committed a plant crime. I went down to Joshua Tree National Park to find out if Cyrus is the wrecking ball she claims to be. I learned that in many ways, Joshua Trees are still mysterious to us and that they have much bigger problems than one misguided, raspy-voiced vegan. After all, that's from a speech that Miley Cyrus gave at Tinderbox Festival on June 28, 2019. If you've never seen a Joshua tree, it's a giant yucca with layered leaves. If you put goggly eyes over the image of Joshua trees, they look like hairy old men. Or hands. Legend has it that the Joshua tree got its name from Mormons crossing the Mojave Desert, who thought that yucca brevifolia looked like the hands of the biblical figure Joshua as he beckoned the Israelites to Canaan. These days, they're pop culture darlings. Musicians like the Eagles, U2, Selena, Donald Glover and Walk Two Moons have shot album covers and music videos in the park. Joshua trees are cool. That desert mystique attracted Miley Cyrus and continues to bring in about 3 million visitors to Joshua Tree National Park every year. The ecosystem at the park is delicate and each species depends on others. Joshua tree seedlings have to find some sort of tough or sharp shrub to grow in at the beginning of their lives or else desert herbivores would quickly devour them and they return the favor and provide shelter to other animals. Red-tailed hawks, morning doves, cactus wrens, and many other birds nest in their branches. Owls and the desert night lizard hide in fallen, desiccated Joshua trees. So how fragile are these desert giants? That's actually harder to determine than the people commenting on Miley Cyrus's illicit Instagram post might portray. Here's Neil Frakes, who works at the Division of Science and Resource Stewardship at Joshua Tree National Park. He's vegetation branch chief, which I think is the first time in this podcast so far that the pun was not intended. Tell me about their root system. Do they have roots that go really deep into the ground? Uh, most of their roots are pretty shallow. I'd say like four to five feet. So they, they don't have a really deep root system. Although, if you, if you look at this 
diagram up here. This is from a BLM native plant um, junior ranger book. And they're actually showing these really deep roots with bulbs. And I don't I have not been able to find anything more scientific on that. <laughs> but, Can I so take I a guess, picture? Yeah, so it's kind of unusual. I don't I don't believe that to be true. But the point is is that we don't necessarily know everything. Okay, so no disrespect to freaks, but this seems like it should be a pretty easy thing to figure out. Y'all know I am an excellent investigator, and so I googled how deep are Joshua tree roots. Get ready for some nitty-gritty fact-checking. We are going into the weeds, my friends. Pun intended there. One of the first sources to pop up on my search was a USDA site written by Corey Gucker, a former Forest Service Research and Development employee in 2006. He wrote that the Joshua Tree root system is described as deep and extensive. The enlarged trunk base of mature trees can be almost four feet in diameter, but only extends about one foot into the ground, suggesting that Joshua trees are supported mainly by their roots and rhizomes. A large number of small fibrous roots penetrate down and horizontally. In southern Utah, Joshua tree roots were found in an excavation pit in a blackbrush community when the nearest Joshua tree was 36 feet or 11 meters away. For the first and last sentence, Glucker cited, an autoological study of black brush in southwestern Utah, the 1973 Utah State University graduate thesis of James E. Bounds. Scientists and people in general left less of a digitally accessible paper trail in those days, but I was able to find documentation of testimony for the American Farm Bureau Federation before the Subcommittee on Department Investigations, Oversight, and Research of the House Committee on Agriculture with regard to H.R. 6725, Animal Damage Control Act of 1980. Basically, the Farm Bureau Federation was trying to bring back lethal injection of coyotes. During the testimony, Bound said that he was a range ecologist working at Utah University and Southern Utah State College, where his responsibilities included predator damage assessments and teaching. In case you're wondering, Bounds testified in favor of killing the coyotes, which sucks, but this is evidence that he was indeed a real person and working scientist. Luckily, his thesis was also digitally available. The thesis is basically a description of certain key species in southwestern Utah, including Joshua trees. He dug up the roots using the ice pick method, which I am going to assume is carried out exactly as it sounds, because as explanation, Bound cites a 1926 paper that's not available on the internet. Most importantly, Bounds described Joshua tree roots. He wrote, it was evident that the roots of Joshua trees have very widespread root systems. Joshua tree roots were found in one excavation pit and the nearest plant was 11 meters distant. So I think Bounds was saying that he found a Joshua tree root and the nearest Joshua tree was more than 36 feet away. This is clearly an outlier because Bounds has graphs of Joshua tree roots and the units are in centimeters. So it's a little sketchy. Science generally frowns upon huge outliers unless there's other data that can show why they're weird. There's several plausible explanations for how Bounds might have made a mistake here. Maybe it was another plant's roots? How different do they really look? But there's two more sources we have to look into. The second source for the first sentence and the one that's cited after the sentence, a large number of small fibrous roots penetrate down and horizontally. 
The second source for the first sentence was a book. A classification of life forms of the Sonoran Desert with emphasis on the seed plants and their survival strategies. This book was published by Frank and Carol Crosswhite in 1984. Their book is also available on the internet, and it is gorgeous and interesting. There's a great picture of Frank standing with a beer in front of an Oregon pipe cactus in June 1960. But there's a big problem here. The book does not even describe the roots of Joshua trees. The Crosswhites describe yucca generally as having a deep and rather massive root system, in contrast to nearby plants in the agave family, which have small roots. Okay, so far we have one questionable thesis finding, and one book that describes the usual behavior of roots for the family that Joshua trees are in, but not the specific species. And species can be really different. Tomato and potato plants are in the same family. So here I go, ready to check the last source. It's a 1979 government report called A Review of the Natural Values of the Hualapai Valley of Joshua Tree Forest an examination of the appropriateness of current protective measures at the site and various recommendations aimed at improving protection of the resource. Unfortunately, only the abstract is available online, but apparently the full text is at the University of Arizona Libraries. If anyone from Tucson is listening and wants to help me, email me so we can get to the bottom of this mystery. But now at least we know why Frakes had different information from the poster hanging in his office. No one seems to know how long Joshua Tree roots are. And I am not about to go out to Joshua Tree National Park and start digging up trees with an ice pick, like Bounce. But after all this research, I personally think the legend of the super long Joshua Tree taproot is a myth. Whether or not I am right, Joshua trees are pretty fragile. Branches fall off all the time, and park visitors are drawn to the most vulnerable trees. Do their branches fall off easily, or is it just the whole tree would fall over? Uh, both. So you, you often see branches breaking off, but most visitors are drawn to Joshua trees that are slightly leaning already, that are easier to, you know, if they wanted to climb one, it would be one that's usually that has enough lean that they can get up on it, and those could really easily topple over. There's a second Joshua tree plant crime I talked to Frakes about. From December 22, 2018 to January 25, 2019, the United States government shut down because Congress and the President could not agree about the federal budget for the new year. You may remember a viral news story from that time about how unsupervised mischief makers took advantage of the reduced park staff to drive off-road and tear down Joshua trees. Frank said that was misreported. Um, there was a little bit of misinformation that came out during that time, and it, it, um, there, there were no Joshua trees that were chopped down during the shutdown. Uh, there were some Joshua trees that had been chopped down prior to the shutdown that we identified and we, we did our best to. There was one uh, Joshua tree that we think was probably knocked over by a car during the shutdown. Um, that's also something that happens fairly regularly in the park with vehicle accidents. When someone acts, you know, misses a curve, a lot of the roads in the park are very windy and they might miss a curve and drive off the road and hit a Joshua tree. There's something I realize about Joshua Tree National Park during my stay. It's huge. It stretches over more than 1,200 square miles, or roughly the size of Rhode Island. Even with a full staff, it's impossible for the park rangers to watch over all of it, all the time. They have to put a significant amount of trust in the millions of people who visit the park each year. 
I fact-checked Frank's statement with David Smith, the superintendent for Joshua Tree National Park. He pretty much confirmed Frank's story in his email, although he added a few details. He says that during the shutdown, Joshua Tree was open with the skeleton crew, and there were reports from campers of chopped-down Joshua Trees, bonfires, and people driving their cars off the road. Journalists started writing articles about these stories, and so Smith says he asked the chief ranger to bring back the entire law enforcement staff. They found a Joshua tree and two old-growth junipers that had been cut down, as well as another Joshua tree and dozens of acacias and other woody shrubs that had been used as firewood or run over by off-road cars. Smith said that the team was able to bring back some park scientists during week three of the shutdown, and that they discovered the first Joshua tree had actually been cut down in the previous October. Smith said that since the government was still shut down, he couldn't talk to journalists and clear up what had happened. In the end, only one Joshua tree perished during the shutdown, and people caused a lot more damage by driving their cars in places where they weren't supposed to. When I hiked around Joshua tree in August, I tried to go in the early morning, when the temperature was around 87 degrees Fahrenheit because the high went up to 116 degrees during the day. I live in San Francisco, and the mild weather and the perfect, almost fake-looking plants feel ominous as I cover the climate crisis. It's like a big, gorgeous ad of everything we're quickly losing. It felt weirdly relaxing to be in the desert. I still appreciated the plants and wildlife, but I could almost trick myself that this place had less to lose. After all, in many ways, it seems like a window into our hot, dry future. But that's not actually true at all, because this ecosystem is deeply imperiled too. Even though Miley Cyrus and her fellow LA tourists are probably not impacting the Joshua trees as much as we might fear, this national park is still under pressure from a combination of fire and drought. You know, I'm usually thinking big picture, and I'm thinking of other forces that are impacting Joshua trees, and you know, one single Joshua tree getting knocked over when, you know, we have over a million of them in the park. And, you know, it's kind of just a drop in the bucket. So what are these malicious forces? Climate change, mostly, plus some other factors that lead to desert degradation. That's different from desertification, which is a phenomenon where the desert spreads. I called William Schlesinger, biogeochemistry and earth sciences professor at Duke University and former president of the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies to explain these concepts. Right. So desertification, it's been around for a number of years. It generally and originally was defined as areas in which land was being degraded such that it became desert-like from conditions that might have been more economically useful, for instance, savanna or grasslands or semi-arid grasslands that might have been used for grazing or pastoral activities. So it generally referred to those areas where land was visibly degraded from a productive capacity into a desert-like capacity. It has periodically, and I think probably unfortunately, been used uh, to talk about degradation of deserts. It's not that deserts are not subject to degradation, and I feel strongly that deserts ought to be preserved and better managed for that preservation. 
but I think it's kind of a, a change in the original definition, original usage of the word desertification to talk about degradation in, in an area that's already desert. So desertification is where the desert spreads. It's a huge problem in places around the Sahara and Gobi deserts. I recommend the Desert Creep episode on the podcast Flash Forward, which I'll link to in the show notes, to learn more about this topic. Because what's happening at Joshua Tree National Park is different. It's desert degradation. Joshua Tree National Park lies at the intersection of the Colorado and Mojave deserts, and the plants and animals there are specifically evolved to live on the very edge of what is possible. Even a small temperature or precipitation change could be disastrous. So they've been desert areas, both the Colorado and Mojave Desert, pretty much since the end of the last glacial period, and have been, for all intents and purposes, in reasonable what we call steady state conditions until recently. Not that there wasn't year-to-year variation, even decade-to-decade variation, but the basic characteristics of the Mojave Desert ecosystem, let's say, uh, pretty much in place for 10, 12,000 years. In recent times, there's a couple of things that are big regional changes going on in the Mojave and upper Colorado deserts that are changing their character. One of those is the ongoing hotter, drier conditions of climate change, which has been seen over a lot of the desert southwest. Another is the deposition of excessive and unusual levels of nitrogen from the atmosphere on the soils and and the ecosystems in general. This is largely coming from various air pollutants in the Los Angeles basin and surrounding areas. These rain out on, well, any ecosystem downwind. In this case, it's the Mojave Desert. Obviously, that those rains are periodic because it doesn't rain very much there. But there are added levels of nitrogen that can change the, the flora, the botanical diversity of a desert ecosystem. Nitrogen pollution from Los Angeles changes the chemistry of the soil at Joshua Tree, which leads to more invasive grasses. In the summer, these grasses die, which makes them uh, kindling, basically, the nitrogen deposition, it's uh, pointed to as the cause of proliferation of exotic grasses in the Joshua Tree National Monument and surrounding areas that do well at higher levels of nitrogen than were naturally found in those areas. Now, one might say, okay, higher levels of grasses, why should we worry about that? Well, a continuous grass cover on the landscape much more readily carries fires. Uh, across that landscape. And so when you have a continuous grass cover, particularly during the dry season when it's dead grasses there, these are much more likely to cause the spread and proliferation of ground fires. And many of the long-established shrubs of the Mojave Desert, creosote bush being a good example, are kind of susceptible to burning. It's not something that was in their evolutionary history. In fact, we have good evidence that the Mojave Desert didn't really burn much at all over long periods of time since the last glacial. You know, now it is, and certain of the the flora that we expect to see in the Mojave Desert may very well be exterminated as a result of more frequent fire. Since fire wasn't a historic part of Joshua Tree National Park, 
The plants there aren't used to it. They don't need regular fires to reproduce or survive, and they're pretty destructive to the ecosystem. You know, in the Mojave Desert, it's generally thought that fires were pretty infrequent, but we've had, starting in the 1960s, we've had a pretty extensive fire history in the park. And that's largely driven by invasive grass species like red brome and cheatgrass. These grasses have come in and they're filling in the inner spaces in between the shrubs. They're creating more fuel than what would be normal. And the grasses tend to persist longer than a lot of the native annual species. So we see that we're getting fires that are more frequent, more severe. They tend to burn more completely, like leaving less umbered patches in their wake. Joshua trees, they can survive fire. They can re-sprout after a fire, but most of them don't. They're really slow to establish new seeds after a fire. So that's a big concern. The higher elevation areas where it's wetter and cooler, where Joshua trees are more likely to be able to survive droughts, those are the areas that we're getting more of the fires because the grasses also do Frakes is trying programs to get rid of the invasive grasses, and by programs, I mean chainsaws. We're starting to take some actions to reduce the abundance of those grasses. We are doing like uh, mechanical treatments in areas where we've been getting a lot of fire to protect those high elevation stands of Joshua trees. Do you mean the clipping? Uh, so in this case, we're using uh, we're having crews go out with power tools primarily string trimmers and chainsaws and that's that's one strategy and this is a new thing for the park this is not something that we've done for a very long time we just started doing this this work this year um, so we're learning from it we're seeing how well it's working Frakes and his team are out there in the 100 degree heat with power tools there's clearly something special about this particular landscape that they have such a strong motivation to protect it so would you say that these desert ecosystems, like when people think about climate change, do you think they're, they're kind of left out in the conversation to some extent or like underestimated? Yes, I, I would say that. And, you know, this is a subjective opinion. When most people think about climate change, first thing they think about is, well, GC levels rising. So coastal communities are going to be impacted. Those in the middle part of the country, particularly those involved with large scale agriculture, Think about hotter and drier growing seasons that may impact crop productivity. So yes, deserts are often far down the list. So as deserts get hotter and drier in global climate change scenarios, the species that are currently at the edge of their tolerance could very well disappear. And then we would lose the character of deserts such as Joshua Tree that we've come to expect over the history of this country. I think that's important, and I think it's important that the habitat for highly unusual plants and animals that occupy those areas be preserved. There are obviously those that consider deserts sort of expendable and, you know, not very interesting. I'm just not with them. But this year, there was plenty of rain. When I visited, the desert was thriving. I took some tape while I listed the cool wildlife I saw on a hike. I've been walking on the Wonders of Geology Trail for about 30 minutes. I saw a jackrabbit. I saw a horned lizard. I saw a whiptail lizard. 
saw a lot of cool cactuses. On the last day of my trip, I went for a morning drive through the park. From my car, I spotted what looked like a grayish blur in the middle of the road. After a poorly executed U-turn, I saw that it was a threatened desert tortoise. You're not supposed to pick up these tortoises unless they are in immediate danger. That's because if you scare them, they pee, which could dehydrate them to the point of death. Which um, sounds like a dumb survival strategy, but we do that too, so. I knew this because I talked to a park ranger about these tortoises the day before. Since the tortoise was sitting in the middle of the road though, I gauged that it was in immediate danger and quickly and carefully picked it up. The NPS website recommends you place your hands on either side of the shell, which is intuitive because it basically has a little ledge. I walked into the desert, gently placed the tortoise down, and ran back to my rental car. I took the longitude and latitude on my phone and sped back to the park entrance, where I told a ranger where to find the tortoise so that they could move it to a safer location, away from the road. This experience was a bittersweet reminder that the desert ecosystem is special. Miley Cyrus probably didn't do that much damage when she climbed on the Joshua Tree, but collectively, the nearly 3 million park visitors every year could wreak some havoc if we followed her example. And the desert ecosystem doesn't need that, on top of drought, rising temperatures, and more frequent and intense fires. Thank you to first listeners Larissa Zimbaroff, Zara Stone, Daniela Bly, John Agnew, and Nikki Duong for providing invaluable feedback. Thanks also to Nikki Duong for the fabulous Plant Crimes illustrations. If you support me on Patreon, you can get access to all sorts of fun content, like my musings on how Miley Cyrus's official signature on Wikipedia has both a star and a smiley face. Thanks for listening!